Our special guest speaker today is someone who certainly shares TAP's mission of providing education, prevention, and treatment support to those plagued by addiction. Ryan Leaf, former superhero quarterback for the Washington State Cougars and the second pick in the 1998 NFL Draft by the Chargers, he knew the highs of high and quickly found the lows of low. He went from all-star glory to prison time. But today, you know, he lives a life of recovery and serves as a program ambassador for Transcend Recovery Community, a great program, by the way, and they have generously underwritten his appearance today. He's a friend of mine who I covered when he played for the Cougars. He's been a guest on Recovery Coast to Coast, and today he's going to share his journey from addiction to long-term recovery. Please give a big Texas-sized welcome to my friend Ryan Leaf. Thank you, sir. Yep. All right. So I, I've seen that a million times uh, since we produced it, and I use it a lot when I speak, and I just, I don't know, I still either A, get really choked up watching it happen, or I immediately feel like it's uh, really cheesy and like a Viagra commercial. Um, today was a little more of the emotional side of things. I don't know for what reason, but this trip has been uh, a lot of reminiscing about what it was like. Um, I get to travel um, with a really, really good friend of mine, uh, Christian D. Oliveira, who is the COO of, of Transcend Recovery Community. And we have a very similar story, just like all of us do. Um, I'm just blessed to actually be asked to be a keynote speaker because NFL triggers a lot of interest in people. And uh, we talked about the jail, the prison part. And it's been over two and a half years. I was released from prison in December of 2014, yet uh, it feels like it was a lifetime ago. But I, I started talking about it again and, and remembering the moment of being arrested and taken in there and the fear of going to jail for the first time and then being placed in a cell, in a clear one, in the intake part of my local hometown's jail, pretty much filleted and placed on display for everybody as I would stay there for 83 days in solitaire as a precaution to me, they said, for my own safety. Uh, you know, I think I forget a lot, as we all do who have been in addiction, of what it was like unless we are reminded of it. And this trip has done that for whatever reason. Coming back to Texas, I spent a large majority of my addiction in Amarillo, Texas, uh, coaching a college football team and, and flown full-blown addiction, taking advantage of those young men, those who I coached who wanted to be like me uh, because of this addiction. Uh, I want to thank TAP for just the amazing honor to be here. Also, just for the fact that you exist. The prevention side that we heard about a little bit earlier is so huge. The, the stigma 
of what addiction is. You never hear anybody talk about, like, I use this reference as, Lucy's in treatment, and it's like they throw apart, like, they're so excited. Yes, Lucy's in treatment. It's usually like, oh, poor Lucy's in treatment. And if we can flip that around for the understanding that of what someone goes through, and if someone like me goes through, like, goes through this, finds a solution, and how to do it, if I don't go and tell my story, who, who will ever hear it, hear of the success, and hear it's okay? I find it funny a lot that when I work with people in addiction and they tell me, you know, don't let anybody know where you met me. I want my anonymity, and, and I understand that. I do. But for me, once I've found this peace and I've, once I've found this surrender, I really I don't care who knows. I want... Because it's a, it's a badge of honor, really. It truly is. And the hero, the superhero theme this year, amazing. It truly, I, I saw that, and I wish somebody would have told me. I would have totally came in costume. <laughs> uh, much, would have been much more effective, I think. You all are superheroes. Anyone who's gone through this, um, anybody who's... It been in a family that's had to deal with this uh, because it just doesn't affect the guy or girl who's going through the addiction. It's the whole family dynamic. Um, the best thing my parents ever did for me when I finagled a way to bond out of jail somehow by telling the bondsmen that I had the money, um, for them to look at me in their living room, fearful of what I was going to do either to them, to myself, um, but to ask me if I would go back to jail. I can't imagine how difficult that was for them. But the strength it showed, uh, and, and, and both of them who unconditionally loved me, uh, that they knew that it was going to be the best place for me. And I looked at them and I said yes. I, and I can't imagine my mother dropping me off. As, I mean, she had dropped me off at swimming lessons. When you saw that little kid in the picture, she dropped me off at college and cried, and what was the feeling of her dropping me off at a jail asking me to go back? Uh, the strength that that took to stop the codependent pattern and enabling my behavior because she just wanted her oldest boy to be next to her um, was the most amazing thing. And any parent out there who whoever asks my advice, it's the biggest thing I say. I say, I know the biggest fear you have is telling your boy or girl no and saying you have to go. I cannot do this anymore. You have to go outside the house. The immediate feeling they feel that they'll never see their child again and the realization that I tell them that you are just slowly killing them by enabling that behavior is a lot of times shocking for them. And what's been pretty neat is through my travels and interacting with people, I've gotten to then talk to these parents and say, hey, I have a mom and dad who were right where you were at. I'd love to give you their number if you'd be up for that. And my parents are, are willing to do that now. They'll talk to these, these random families that reach out to me through social media or during speaking engagements, and my parents will talk to them about what they did. And that's another way for prevention to destigmatize this disease, is to have people 
not be ashamed of their son's addiction or how they handled it while it went on, but rather be at the forefront of trying to stop it and have a family member or a family go through something very similar. And again, organizations like this uh, represent that completely. I'd also like to thank um, Transcend Recovery Community. They have, uh, they've given me purpose and meaning, uh, really just to a, a good old run-of-the-mill junkie. Um, in this business, there's a tendency to be a lot of narcissism and self selfishness in it. And I found an organization that I've hitched my wagon to, and, and you've had to hitch your wagon to me um, on what you represent and how I represent myself. And uh, I'm so grateful for that. They gave me an opportunity to be a driver in one of their sober living houses, to be a manager in one of the houses, to help bring along um, young men and women who are struggling or, or where I was at, uh, at, five or at uh, $15 an hour. Now, this is a guy who was making $5 million a year and felt miserable and was making $15 an hour and actually felt value for the very first time. So thank you. That, of course, has blossomed into something very special as a program ambassador. Like I said, I've hitched my wagon to you, you the same. I do this, I get this opportunity to go around the country and speak at events, um, whether it's athletic-related or recovery-related. Um, it really is, AA for me is the better person's club. You essentially, or what I thought of AA was is where the bad people went when I was growing up. Um, and I now I know it's, it's where you go to be a better person and it's a guide to living. It doesn't necessarily, because I stopped taking drugs. That, that mugshot you saw, that was the last time, April 1st, 2012, that I, that I took a drug, but I spent 32 months in prison. I didn't get better. I just didn't use a drug. I had to make a transformation emotionally and physically that was completely different than what, that, that who I was before I went in there. And I can, I can tell you, for probably for the first 26 of the 32 months, I was as self-loathing and angry and judgmental and blaming as anyone. Nothing changed. Just because you remove the substance doesn't mean you become a better person. I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug. I behaved, and I know how addicts behave now, so I can look back and I go, that's how I was behaving before I ever even saw, saw a little white pill. God blessed me, of course, again with the, with the roommate. I had a roommate who was an Afghan and Iraqi war vet who had done something we probably have all done in our life, and that's drive drunk. It just so happened he killed someone that night, and from 23, the age of 23 to the age of 31, where he was now, he had spent his, his youthful years in a prison cell. And for whatever reason, he, he didn't allow it to affect him in a negative way. He found ways to make amends, get better, and want to be something. And one day, he came into the room and looked at me and said, Ryan, well, he didn't necessarily say it in that tone, he was very aggressive in his tone and said, you don't, you got to get your head out of the sand. You don't understand the value you have, not only to the men in here, but to the people when you get out. 
Because, Ryan, you are going to get out at some point, even though you keep denying your parole and figure you're just going to lay here. And I, you know, I can't remember exactly what my words were to him, were, but like, you know, you know, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm watching Ellen. <laughs> and he simply says, we're going to go down to the library today, and you're going to help guys who don't know how to read learn how to read. And I know now it was a defining moment for me. I do. At the moment, of course, I didn't. I, re I remember, you know, muttering under my breath as we walked down the hall to the library, you know, like, doesn't he understand who the hell I am? This is going to be embarrassing. And, and all these things that the narcissist that still inhabited me was. And we got down there, and it didn't happen the first day, and it didn't happen the second day. But it's like going to the gym, and you can't expect to look like a Greek god the day after you go. You know, it takes time. It's progress, not perfection. And before I knew it, it was three months, and I'd help guys learn how to read who didn't know how to read. And then I was assisting the substance abuse counselor as his aide. And it honestly was the first time I'd ever been of service to anybody in my life. I had done things like worked with Habitat for Humanity and Make-A-Wish Foundation when I was playing. But now that I was truly honest with myself, I could look at myself in the mirror and go, you know, I, I can't even remember the name of the, the, the young kid whose dying wish was to spend a day with me. And the selfishness and shame I feel because of that uh, truly, you know, circled my point that I hadn't been of service to anybody. That was all about me and my marketing and my brand. And this was the first time. And then I knew that once I got out, that the service part of it was going to have to set at the foundation, set the foundation for me moving forward. Otherwise, I was just going to just return. Same cycle, same person. And once I went out, I, I went to my parole officer, and I told him, I need to go to treatment. And he looked at me like I was nuts. He said I was the first prisoner that walked out of a prison cell and asked to go to treatment. And in doing so, no one knows how, that, knows how that's supposed to work. So it took 90 days for all the red tape to be cut to get me to go to a treatment facility. And that meant sleeping on mom and dad's couch. I was a 35-year-old or 38-year-old man uh, with no money, didn't help the self-esteem. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what, what was about to happen. I, I literally just had hope. And it helped rebuild some fences with mom and dad, the trust. Um, and when I got that call that they were okaying my, my journey south to California to Promises to do 90 days of inpatient treatment after being sober for uh, three years, was a very interesting concept. I got placed in the detox room immediately with other detoxing individuals, and after the first couple nights, I had asked my counselor if I could stay in that room for my entirety. Because A, I wanted to see what was still out there for me, and B, I needed to learn empathy 
And I needed to learn how to be patient with people who are going through what I have gone through. I always thought it was hilarious to see the look on somebody's face when they came to treatment for the first time and were going to stay for 28 days and figured they had it licked. And I said, well, I'm, I'm sober three years. I'm going to stay here 90 days, guys. <laughs> That's why it's so important after spending that time in, in inpatient facilities, and anybody who does inpatient facilities, is they transition into a sober living environment. I, I, can't, I can't say more about it. That inpatient place was wonderful. You're safe, you're secure, you're learning all these tools. But if you immediately go back to what you've always known, your muscle memory will kick in. My behaviors existed for 38 years. I'm making changes at them, but it's going to take time. I don't figure it out overnight. Hell, it might be 38 years before I figure it out. So, you know, at 76, I'll have the answers for you. <laughs> it's just so important. And conventions like this bring sober living environments out of the woodwork to everybody and understanding what that looks like. I believe a program should be anywhere from 12 to 18 months. However, that goes from detox to inpatient to sober living, intensive outpatient, to transition, case management, mentoring. It just has to. It has to be a 180-degree lifestyle change. If I didn't completely change how I went about things, I would end up right back in prison. I had three ideals growing up. I don't necessarily know when they took hold, but they were money, power, and prestige. I thought that's what made you successful, period. I had all the money in the world, which made me powerful, and I was a starting quarterback in the NFL, which gave me the prestige. Every, everybody wanted to be like me. And even when my career crashed and burned, I still had those three things I felt. And I pretended that that was who I was until one night in Vegas when I was sitting at a fight in the MC announced over the loudspeaker all the celebrities in the audience until, and everybody cheered, you know, Dr. Dre, Charles Barkley, Tiger Woods, until they got to my name and then they announced my name and the whole MGM Grand booed and hissed. And, you know, that had happened to me before. I was a football player, you know, of course, but I had my armor on. I had my helmet on and I kind of, I took that all in. But tonight I was just, again, laid bare to everyone. And I, I look back on it now and saw it as the triggering factor. Vicodin is my drug of choice. It's the only drug I've ever taken in my life. I didn't drink an alcoholic beverage until I was 18 years old. Yet I'd been introduced to orthopedic surgeries throughout my whole NFL career and preparing for week to week for games. Uh, that night was the first time when somebody came up to me, a boxing promoter, af after the fight at an event and offered me a couple Vicodin pill to go with my... My drink that night, I took them, and I can tell you right now that I walked into a lot of rooms the rest of that evening and didn't feel any judgment. The painkiller did exactly what it was supposed to do. It killed my pain, and I was off and running. I remember how good it felt and how it took away my physical pain when I played, and now it was doing exactly what it was meant to do for my emotional pain. I was a self-medicating, uh, high-functioning drug addict. If you consider high-functioning being retired, living in his house with his blinds drawn, watching old reruns of The West Wing and, and uh, uh, Dawson's Creek, pining over Katie Holmes. That was my life. 
And the most fearful thing of it all is I was okay with it. You know? I may have those feelings of, like, oh my God, you need help, or oh my God, you're a junkie. And then I just take more pills. And of course, those, those feelings would go away. The shame and guilt of it all was always there. And the vicious cycle of it all was I'd be sitting in front of a house I was about to walk into to take their pills, and I would be so shameful and guilt-ridden about it. But knowing that I didn't want to ever feel that way, you go in and you get the pills to remove that shame and guilt and fear, and it disappears for a little, little period of time, and then it's back. And then you have to medicate it again. And the feeling uh, dissipates when they're in your hand. And you immediately go, the ends justifies the means for me. And I did this over and over and over and over for years until finally the God of my choosing, who I'd been asking for for help for years, who had given me plenty of opportunities and plenty of signs, finally just said, I'm just going to send the sheriffs this time. And thank God he did. I spent 32 months in prison, like I said. Uh, I never thought I'd be able to tell an audience that I was grateful to have spent 32 months in prison. I don't recommend it. But for me, the guy that once probably thought he was a god needed to be humbled in a way that showed me that. And then my hope, of course, now is that I tell you this story and that someone in this room or someone in another room, whether it be one person or ten, hears it and doesn't have to go to the bottom that I had to go to. Now, I will say it has to be your rock bottom, whatever that is, for you to fully understand it and accept it. But that is the hope. I didn't necessarily want to be in the public eye again. Hoped I could go away, work at McDonald's actually, and just kind of disappear and be sober. But that doesn't work for me. I need to have a meeting. I need to have a, uh, a purpose. And I go to a meeting where there's a group of men in there who simply live a very public, humble, sober life. And I take what they say very seriously, and I take what they say to heart, and I take their suggestion. And they said, Ryan, this is what you have to do. You have to. And it's part of our 12th step. It is. You know, you have a spiritual awakening. As a result of this, you carry your message to others who struggle and try to practice these principles in all your affairs. And it made sense. And as long as I continue to do that and remove myself from the equation, I'm not here to show you guys that, hey, everybody, look how good I look. You know, this is about you. This isn't about me. Because, as I said, with my friend, Christian could be up here telling you the same story uh, that I am. We're all the same. The end of my video, and I say my name, and I say I'm just like you, I am just like you. I am no better, I am no worse, I am a very flawed human being trying to be better on a daily basis, just like every single one of you, and I've gotten the greatest chocolate-eating job I could ever imagine because of it. <laughs> I, I surrounded myself with people who always told me yes, and those who told me no and tried to help me, I pushed away out of my life. 
because of those three ideals. The three I have just absorbed and made part of my daily life now are significantly different. Um, They are ones that I live by totally. One is accountability. I was never accountable uh, for myself or for anybody my whole life. The huge shift, I think, really happened while in prison, and I finally could look in the mirror at myself and say, Ryan, you are here because of what you did. No one else. Not the NFL, not the media, not the doctors. You know, not the person that called in saying this guy was in my house stealing my pills. You know, it was me. What was my part in all of those things? I'd never, I never had looked at that. I always, I always felt I was a victim. Two, spirituality. There was a running joke at Washington State or in the state of Washington that got published in a Sports Illustrated article that, uh, that went, what's the difference between God and Ryan Leaf? And the punchline was, is God doesn't think he's Ryan Leaf. <laughs> and I, I thought that was hilarious. And I, you know, relished in it, because I probably did, like I said, thought, think I was a god for a long time. That this is what everybody, you know, I was here to entertain you, and you were here to look up to me. And to understand that there's something so much bigger than me out there. And that's where my spirituality comes from. It's not religion. I can get my higher power from a reading in the morning, I pretty much got my higher power today from the young lady that gave the the quote as to, I once had a secret and now I have a story. I'll take that. I wrote it in my notes on my phone. I'll carry it out with me forever now. Sometimes it's in nature. Sometimes it's in another human being. It's always something else. When I feel bigger than, than where I should be, I have a tendency to walk into the ocean up to about my knees and immediately feel as small as you can possibly feel looking out at the Pacific Ocean. Um, and it's an important, important step in how I've achieved this peace. And of course, the third part is community. My using was exactly how I told you. I'd get the pills, I'd go into a house, uh, drapes would be closed, I was antisocial, I would use them for as long as I could until I ran out, and then I'd find another way to get some more. I mean, I was as distant from a community as I could be. I now actually now have a job that community isn't a title. Transcend Recovery Community. It is wide-reaching. From Los Angeles to Houston here in Texas to New York, I am I'm a part of that. And then the fellowship that comes with AA, the program. I found a, a group of men who I call my board of directors, that I simply go to on when I need to make choices. My best thinking takes me to a prison cell. I do not make proper choices. So the most recent one I I went to them with was whether I should propose to my fiance, or well, she isn't, whether I should propose to my girlfriend. And it came back four to one yes. So that is what I did. And she's now my fiance. And she's now my And now and she's now my uh, uh, my son's mom to be in about 6 weeks. 
Um, I didn't ask the board if I should make a baby, though. That just happened the night I proposed. Um, I'm so happy I'm a sober man at this point in my life when I'm having a child because of the, the story, as she said. I won't have any secrets from him. Um, my brother asked my fiance when I had proposed why, what did it? What finally, you know, what, why Ryan? What did it? And she said to him, he's the most honest man I've ever met. And my brother fell on the floor laughing. <laughs> because that would not be the definition my brother or anybody in my family would give for me. Because I was a liar and I was a thief and but how that makes me feel to hear the woman that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with values that character trait of me the most is something so rewarding. When you're transparent and you tell the truth, you don't have to think about all the lies you've told to cover those stories, and it's so easy to stand in front of a group of people and just kind of free flow and do it. And certainly you can't lie in front of a group full of junkies because they'll call you out immediately. For the longest time, I felt like a, a large hypocrite. I got sober before, and as Neil was saying, I did his show in March of 2012. I think it was around March 15th or so. And I sounded like most who have gone through treatment do, but were amazing manipulators. I was in a very bad place, yet I was able to talk a good talk. And we all found out two weeks later, literally two weeks from doing his show, Recovery Coast to Coast, talking about how good I was doing, uh, I was arrested. And it, it proves a point that, that this isn't about me. This is about you and what you do and what you can do on a daily basis to control that. Whether you were, when I walk out of this room, if all of you but one thought, well, that was a, whole bowl of, uh, that was a bunch of shit, but the one person takes something away and affects change in another person, that was the point. And that is my only hope. That's my only expectation. Um, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, I'm grateful for this opportunity, and I'm grateful for what you all do. I think that gratitude um, is the important part. And as I started, and I told you that this trip brought back a lot of, for whatever reason, thoughts of what it was like, it also immediately, as I was sitting and listening to the young men and women, get the scholarships, uh, the recipients of the awards, uh, of how grateful that I get to live in this, this community now. How foreign it was to me, or even the idea that I didn't know it existed. And the gratitude I have for actually being a part of it. And to be a part of it, I had to be the worst version of myself to get there. And that's okay. And anybody who ever asked me if it's, aren't you ashamed, or if they want to make fun of me, I simply go, thank you. You've helped. Because I don't try to be judgmental or fearful of anything in my life anymore, though, of course, we all are, all the time. It's important to be self-aware of why that happens. And I am. The 180-degree lifestyle change I talked about are, I go to meetings, I have a sponsor, 
I sponsor guys. I've been through the steps. I see a therapist bi-weekly. Um, I meditate. I pray. I exercise. I've had 15 surgeries orthopedically because of my choice to play a sport. And I'm in pain, but there's ways to figure that out. There's ways to modify that and do it in a healthy way. There's a disease that takes away a ton of our control, almost all of it. Once you've learned what this peaceful and chaotic life can look like, when that fork happens in your life, you have that choice to deal with it in a positive way or deal with it in a negative, toxic way. And it just so happened that for most of my life, I dealt with it in a negative and toxic way. But the power, that freedom that comes with being able to choose a, a positive path because of what you've learned and what you know and what you know can be possible is very powerful. So, let me see here. Yes. I have a 4.30 flight to get back to that mama. <laughs> and I just wanted to say thank you all very much for just listening and being here and being part of this, this organization. Uh, and if there's anything Transcend or myself can do for any of you at any time, please let me know. Thank you very much. Stick around, I gotta give you an award. Ladies and gentlemen, TAP has something for Ryan. Suzanne? So each year, TAP, the TAP Conference Committee, awards grant and aid checks to several deserving organizations. This year, we are pleased to present to the Ryan Lee Focused Intensity Foundation, a check for $1,000. Thank you very much. Once again, Mr. Ryan Leaf. The bright side of addiction is recovery, and you've just seen it right up here. Before closing today, we want to take a moment to thank exhibitors and sponsors for their support of TAP and for helping to make this conference one of the largest and one of the best in the country. Our premier sponsor again this year is Nova Recovery Center, and I'd like the staff of that wonderful treatment center to stand and be acknowledged for their ongoing support. They help make this happen. Thank you so much. And now the winners of the booth decorating contest. And boy, this was a tough job because there were some amazing superhero booths out there. Uh, third place goes to... I love it when it gets quiet. Taylor Recovery. Second place goes to Clear Fork Academy. And the winner, first place, Memorial Herman Park. Thank you to our winners and thank you to all of the exhibitors who are indeed winners. Now plans are underway for next year's State TAP Conference returning back here to the Hyatt Regency County Resort and Spa. It'll be August 16th through the 18th. And it'll start off with the sixth annual TAP Golf Tournament, followed by the 44th annual Addiction Studies Conference. The theme will be Follow the Yellow Brick Road to TAP's Emerald City. 
Now, they seem to get bigger and better every year, so I'm sure you don't want to miss this one. Don't get shut out. A lot of people wanted to stay in the hotel, and they found out by the time they went to make reservations it was sold out. Make your plans now. No place like home. This concludes today's program. It has truly been a pleasure and an honor being your MC today. We hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. And remember, the bright side of addiction is recovery. Pass it on.